If I want to put someone on a continuous EEG monitoring, I can only do two before I, I have no machines left. So you have to kind of use discretion in terms of where am I going to be able to do the most benefit uh, for the folks who are in my care at this point in time. Hello Homo sapiens. Today, meet adult epileptologist, neurologist, and fellow podcast host, Michael Kentris from Ohio, US. In fact, today, this is part one of two with Michael. Today's episode is about the challenges faced by neurologists in rural and often undersourced, comparatively speaking, and generally speaking, areas, and the benefit of telemedicine, the use of which positively exploded during the COVID pandemic. Hello there, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please tell everybody a little bit about yourself in 30 seconds? Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Michael Kentris. I'm a neurologist in the U.S., in Ohio specifically, and uh, I currently am working in a, a community hospital setting. Uh, I also run the Neurotransmitters podcast, which is mostly focused on neurology education for the curious as well as those in healthcare. And so tell us a bit more about your position in the community in which you're in and possibly compared to other environments in which you've worked, because I understand you're in a slightly more uh, sparsely populated rural area. Is that right? I should specify a little bit. You know, so the, there's a small urban area, and then around that is a large uh, rural area because uh, we're kind of centered, for those who know the geography, between uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. So about 60 to 70 miles or 120 kilometers, give or take, um, between those large urban areas. So, so we've got a large population coming into kind of a central uh, hospital location. So in my previous position, I, I worked in the epilepsy department, and so we were an epilepsy center there. It was about a 900-bed hospital or so, so I've moved to be closer to family. And in this new, new hospital, new uh, practice environment, you know, it's a smaller hospital, not an epilepsy center, uh, so, so we're still looking to try and you know, at least from my end, uh, I want to provide still that same level of care um, for epilepsy patients in specifically, because that's what, I, what I'm trained to do. And uh, so trying to find ways to kind of cope with limited resources has been a bit of a unique challenge over this last year. And what are the challenges specifically? I think there are several. Um, one is, and probably the most obvious, there are a lot fewer neurologists just in general. So you have a lot of folks who are being seen primarily by their you know, family physician or an internist. And so they're, they're getting treatment, perhaps not ideal, uh, whether medication choice or dosing, et cetera. And then so there's a delay in getting into a neurology clinic. And then for folks who maybe aren't responding, who maybe question might be falling into the medically refractory uh, camp in epilepsy, um, getting that next step in testing, that usually means going all the way to these other centers like Cleveland Clinic or other university hospitals that are quite a ways away, which, as everybody who's listening probably knows, uh, travel, uh, especially over those distances, can be very challenging for someone with epilepsy. Especially as often, you know, if we have a refractory epilepsy, well, generally, legally, not allowed to drive. Right, right. And how does one reach, you know, the area where they're going to be able to get this? Uh, I presume you're potentially talking about like EEG, MRI, video telemetry, etc. Absolutely. Okay. And how do you deal with the situation? So it's been, uh, you know, a little difficult in terms of getting the right diagnosis and getting the right treatment. So a lot of times, 
right? I'm primarily working in the hospital at present. So a lot of times folks, they have a breakthrough seizure, a breakthrough event of some kind. And so they come in and I, unfortunately, I'm just kind of seeing a little snapshot of their life. Mm. But I see a medication regimen where they maybe they're on two or three different medications. And I'm like, well, these don't work well together at all. Wow. And so I'll give them like, you know, a plan to follow over the next like two or three months in terms of like you know start weaning this one increase this level check your level in of this medication in a month and and then i'll have them follow up with one of my my colleagues who you know they're not epileptologists but uh they're still in neurology practice and so we can kind of kind of set things on autopilot for a period of time at least and you know trying to be available to my colleagues uh in the community who might have questions on that front. Uh, I think one of the other challenges is a lot when we're not sure if we have the the right diagnosis or not, because we don't have a proper epilepsy monitoring unit. In fact, for our, our whole hospital, we only have three EEG machines. So, so it's 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 a little challenging, right? Because uh, I, I I will sometimes, and we have you know, in addition to folks who are coming in with spells. We also have folks in the intensive care unit who might not be responding. So if we want to, if I want to put someone on a continuous EEG monitoring, I can only do two before I, I have no machines left. And uh, so you have to kind of use discretion in terms of where am I going to be able to do the most benefit uh, for the folks who are in my care at this point in time. Yeah. And so you do have to do a bit more triaging um, than you might otherwise. And I, I am fortunate in that at least I have the training to do that. Right. A lot of neurologists don't don't have that training in neurophysiology or epilepsy um, to be as comfortable reading those you know twenty four hour studies. And you know obviously that is a, a skill set that uh, that needs some training. But uh, I've been trying to introduce that to the community, and I've had a couple folks come in over. I guess more than a couple uh, over the last year or so we're like all right well you keep having these spells you've been having these for years and you've never been to an epilepsy unit or you know had it you know a, the proper thing so you kind of try and get it sorted sometimes you catch the spell sometimes you don't but again it's not a proper unit because a lot of times these folks are on meds and I can't take them off those medications safely because they don't have the 24 7 you know eyes on them uh, so that's that's some of the limitations that we're kind of dealing with in this setting. You know, obviously we try and get them to a proper epilepsy center, but a lot of folks, and I don't know if this is the same in uh, in the UK, but you know, it's more than 20, 20 miles away. The they was like, I don't know if I want to go all the way to that big, you know, big area. The traffic's so bad, on and on and on, and so it becomes this challenge. Like people want care in their community, and trying to make it so that you can deliver that care is is challenging both from like a personnel as well as just a straight up resources perspective so what do you see as being the potential gosh it's a rather grand word about solutions uh yeah to these challenges um because i guess there's you know staff there's training there's transport there's mm-hmm. awareness there's yet so many things what do we what needs to be done locally regionally and nationally i think you're seeing a little bit of this where you're kind of and to some degree even with um private companies where you're seeing more services where they have you know sometimes a a stable of neurophysiologists and epileptologists who are interpreting studies 
and they will like do home monitoring, things like that. Uh, sometimes even video monitoring, which has been quite impressive. We also, I think, seen some more sort of um, hub and spoke type models with large academic centers where you have maybe a you know a general neurologist uh, or other type of clinician kind of boots on the ground, so to speak, and then they are able to to put the person on EEG and you have someone at a central location kind of reading for a few different hospitals. Um, I'm actually doing something similar to that uh, myself intermittently for my my former employer. I still read EEGs for them uh, periodically. Your fingers in so many pies. <laughs> you know, got to keep your skills up, right? But yeah, I and that, I think, you know, silver lining perhaps from the, uh, the COVID pandemic um, is that we did see this explosion in the utilization of telemedicine. You know, at least in the United States, it was something that mm-hmm. uh, insurance wouldn't pay for most of the time or um, that you couldn't do across state lines. And it's still a little dicey state line-wise, but there have been some interstate compacts which have made uh, some of that a little smoother in certain situations. So that way you're able to, you know, like, sure, you can't, you know, go halfway across the country to see that nationally renowned specialist, but maybe you can do a telemedicine visit um, and still get you know good continuity, good follow up. So I think there is this increasing accessibility of these uh, specialists to to people in rather remote areas, and I think we're we're just starting to see that you know. Uh, take off a bit uh, over the past couple of years. I mean, it's great uh, for people to be able to access this um, care, advice, etc. remotely, but also we need uh, more humans to be able to provide that. Right. In what sort of stage of the process are we in, at least to your knowledge, um, you know, in, in the US, in increasing the number of um, clinicians who can actually provide the service remotely? So that's actually a great question and one that I've, I've thought about a lot, actually. Um, <clears throat> so... There, like if you look at some of the employment data from some of the you know professional journals and whatnot, uh, there's approximately two open positions in the country for every practicing neurologist in the United States. So we have a third of the people we need. Uh, roughly, yes. The average age of the practicing neurologist is in the early fifties. Uh, and the demand, <laughs> I know I'm just, I'm painting a grim picture, uh, <laughs> you know, because, uh, I think like, like most of the, uh, the Western world, we're kind of at an inverted population demographic at the moment. So as the, the baby boomer generation gets older, there's going to be increasing neurologic demand. So the demand is also expected to increase over the next 10 to 20 years. So, uh, to your question, uh, what can we do about it? Uh, well, we need to train more neurologists is the short answer. One of my, my goals has been, because uh, this is a, a community hospital, but it is a community teaching hospital. So there's still like, you know, they're training internists and family physicians and general surgeons. And there is interest from the administration in starting a residency program for neurologists, which I would love. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, kind of a little bit of a catch-22 in as much as we need to recruit a, enough neurologists to have a good faculty that we can provide a good teaching environment for said trainees. But uh, I, I think that, you know, I would say, you know, it's incumbent upon neurologists to take an active teaching role in as much as if you're not part of a neurology residency to be very active in teaching 
our primary care physicians um, so that they're able to be better equipped uh, to identify and treat uh, folks with epilepsy and you know other neurologic disorders for that matter. So um, I think that's that's uh, a very important part, you know. I know it's kind of tongue-in-cheek to say that you want to be like a lifelong learner, but I do think it is important and to really make sure that you uh, get that foundational uh, training during, during you know, your, your residency and uh, even medical school. If, uh, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of medical schools don't have mandatory neurology rotations. So you may, in the U.S. at least, there are many schools where you could go all the way through four years of medical school you know, three plus years of residency training and you never do a neurology rotation at all. That's nuts. Yeah, I think so. That sounds a bit crazy. So I guess what you're saying is that, well, we have to, um, we don't want to get into politics, but basically politicians and people providing (laughs) uh, funding for all these types of things, you know, but especially neurology and epileptology, we have to be thinking long term as well as short term in order to, you know, keep things going. Oh, absolutely. But also plan for the future which is not too far ahead really um closer every day (laughs) yeah (laughs) well look everybody very much related to what we've just been speaking of is going to be the second part of um michael and my chat um, and we're going to be speaking about diagnosis of epilepsy um and mm, frequent mistakes that may be made in diagnosis and how we can try and avoid those so please make sure you subscribe so that you can get receive notifications for next week's episode thank you so much for joining us michael thank you if you'd like to connect you can find me on twitter linkedin facebook or instagram and i'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show please subscribe to epilepsy sparks insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.